Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Tuesday, October 6th, 2022. In this week's episode, we will cover the SEC fining Kim Kardashian in excess of $1 million for failing to publicly disclose a paid endorsement for a cryptocurrency on her social media. Plus, allegations of Brad Pitt's emotional and physical abuse detailed in a suit filed by Angelina Jolie against her ex-husband. Also, the ongoing outburst of Daryl Brooks, who has chosen to represent himself in the murder trial of the Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacre. And finally, we'll talk about closing arguments in Paul Flores' trial for the murder of Kristen Smart as the jury continues their deliberations. Our guest today is Kirk Nurmi, a former criminal defense attorney, author, public speaker, and cancer survivor whose work speaks to the power of finding joy in your life. Kirk, welcome. Josh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to uh, talking about all these fascinating cases with you. It's our pleasure to have you. Um, Before we jump into these things, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what the current work is that you're involved in? Sure. I, uh, out of law school, went right to work at the Public Defender's Office in Maricopa County, which is one of the largest court systems uh, in the nation. I did exclusively criminal defense work for the first 10 years or so of my career, and that included... uh, death penalty work. As a matter of fact, the last five or so years of my career was doing uh, death penalty litigation. Uh, people know me most infamously from the uh, Jody Arias case, it got, a case that got worldwide attention. Um, after that, you mentioned, you were kind enough to mention I was a cancer survivor. After that case finally concluded two and a half years uh, after it started, uh, cancer came into my life and I decided it was time to make some changes in my life. And the you know, I had written a book because Ms. Arias had told some lies about me, and I felt like I was ethically uh, entitled to respond. The bar took a different opinion, and they wanted to suspend me for four years. But I asked for disbarment because when I made the choice to go into the chemo chair, I didn't want to live my remaining days the way I had my prior days. and I didn't want to just run out the clock as a lawyer, and I knew if I had that safety net, I wouldn't be able to to resist going back to it. So um, once asking for disbarment and becoming a cancer survivor, uh, I started the journey of writing several books. I've written eight total now. And uh, and and taking taking better care of myself. I really got on the journey to do that once I went from cancer survivor uh, to my cancer being in remission to being cancer-free, which is something you hit at the five-year mark. So once that happened, it's just with synchronicity, I connected to the great people at Radical Body Transformation, and I've been uh, working their program, and we'll have uh, two fitness shows that kind of document part of my journey and a lot of inspirational stories coming out on Amazon Prime uh, next year. Wow, that is fantastic stuff. I'm I'm really excited to hear about uh, that journey of yours. Um, and we're excited to hear your thoughts on these cases. We've got a w- wider range of things that we're going to be talking about here. So let's take a look. Uh, first, out of Washington, D.C., billionaire influencer Kim Kardashian has reportedly agreed to pay $1.26 million in SEC charges after she failed to disclose a payment she received to promote Ethereum Max. According to the allegations, those promoting a stock are required to disclose that they have received payment in exchange 
for their promotion. Though she did include a hashtag ad uh, denotation in in the in her post promoting Ethereum Max's Emax tokens, she failed to disclose that she was paid two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the post. This isn't the first public figure to face scrutiny over the promotion of Ethereum Max, with investors also leveling suits against Paul Pierce and Floyd Mayweather for the promotion of the cryptocurrency. All right, Kirk. So while 1.6 million uh, is a lot of money for for a lot of folks, it's not that much money for Kim Kardashian. Do you think uh, Kim was uh, in jeopardy, though, of possible criminal charges from the SEC referring this over to the DOJ, given the size of the the fine that they did levy against her? You know, it's it's hard to say because I think it would really relate to this idea. What you mentioned, Josh, is the idea of ad. I mean, to me, there must be the most meaning the violation must be the most technical because it seems like yeah. she was acting in the spirit of the disclosure you have to be paid to me if somebody's making an ad that means they were paid to do that right so i think just looking at that plain language it looks to me like it might have been pretty tough to bring a criminal charge given her intention you know and we have to have an act and we have to have the intention to have a to, to have a crime right but it's certainly possible and it's someone who is uh, my understanding and we hoping to be a lawyer in california she's probably looking to put this behind her quickly so my guess is that that might have been a possibility but for her real motivation was to just get this out of the headlines. Yeah, I agree with you. It should, yeah, good luck to her on that. It seemed like everybody was covering it for a while there. But um, you got to imagine she's got a team of lawyers who were dealing with this. And I, I agree with you. It seems like she had somewhat of a defense by putting in that hashtag, you know, alerting people to the fact that this was an ad. You would assume that that means that she's somehow getting compensated for it. But still, the SEC... Like I said, I don't think that's a small fine. I mean, to anybody else, that would be a large amount of money. So they, especially because it's several multiples of what you apparently got paid uh, for the ad. My question, I wonder, is it sounds like now this Ethereum Max is reportedly under investigation for allegedly operating one of these kind of pump and dump schemes where they try to really boost up the price. They all make a profit, then they sell it out and everybody else who invested in it, meaning her millions of followers who may have listened to her advice, uh, they get left with with the tab. Do you think that brought more attention from the SEC, given that kind of speculative nature of the investment? Perhaps so. And it, but but the question that comes to my mind is, as as an actor, is does she have a duty to investigate all that before she goes forward and puts an ad? I mean, she's being hired to put forth an ad. I don't know that that should put a duty on the actor because that's essentially what they are. You mentioned other public figures, be they public figure, actors, influencers, whatever we're going to call them these days. Is the idea that, you know, are they to investigate everything behind the company that they're going to aid by, by their employer, in essence? To me, that kind of shifts the burden a little bit. And when you were talking about the fine and everything, I think, yeah, the fine is not light. But also you have to think about, too, what would her litigation cost be? So we have to yeah. think that that's probably factored in there, too, and just wanting to wash your hands of this whole thing because, you know, she might have action against the company that hired her, but they might be insolvent by the time she gets there. So, yeah.
Yeah. I, 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 along with this, it appears like she might be the first of several. We already mentioned a couple of athletes, um, but other influencers are apparently uh, being I- investigated. And when I use that term influencer, I mean people who just have such a social media presence that, you know, here she is for one post getting $250,000. So you can imagine the value that that type of a post has to people who want to advertise uh, using her and others like her to promote their products or cryptocurrency or what have it. Do you think this is maybe a sign that the SEC and the government at large uh, views these these influencers far less as just kind of social media folks and that they're more kind of in the era of being legit businesses that should be under the same type of regulation? Yeah, I think we're seeing the that they are being treated as legit businesses, and and to some degree, I think they should be because you've mentioned, you know, if they're going to pay her X amount of money, whatever it's Kim Kardashian or any influencer, if they're going to pay them to promote the product, they assume that they're going to get a return on their investment, right? That they're going to sell more product, get more money than they would have if they didn't pay that particular social. And, and, and you're right. I mean, we think about these people, whether they're Kim Kardashian or somebody on TikTok who's, who maybe us, us older guys haven't heard of that's got 10 million followers and making, you know, as an influencer. I do think the SEC is moving towards the fact that these people are legitimate businesses. They are worthy of scrutiny in that regard. And I think obviously we're seeing that with Kim Kardashian's case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sounds like she got herself out of trouble for now, but I, I I bet you she will think a little more carefully the next time she's willing to take some money to, to kind of promote a product that she's just not that familiar with. Moving on now, though, to Los Angeles, California, Angelina Jolie has filed a countersuit against her ex-husband, Brad Pitt, in the legal battle over a French winery the couple shared. According to Jolie, negotiations between the former couple uh, to sell their shares in the winery broke down over the terms of a non-disclosure agreement that would bar Jolie from speaking publicly about Pitt's physical and emotional abuse. The lawsuit alleges that Pitt acted abusively towards Jolie and their children on a 2016 private flight from France to California. According to Jolie, the dispute began after Pitt accused Jolie of being, quote, too deferential to their children. Pitt is accused of choking Jolie, then choking one of their children who came to her defense. He later allegedly poured beer on Jolie and beer and wine on the children. So really awful kind of stuff, what's being alleged here. The incident was investigated, however, by the FBI in 2016, and charges were never pursued, though this was reportedly the last straw for Jolie before seeking an end to their marriage. Um, First off, Kirk, this was already investigated by the FBI. Charges never materialized. Do you think that that's the end for any kind of criminal charges for Brad Pitt? I think so. I mean, I don't know the statute of limitations on something like this just off the top of my head. But I think so. I mean, there's the claim that Jolie's making that it was investigated and that supposedly an FBI agent found probable cause. We don't even know if that part of it is accurate, right? Because the affidavit, as I understand it, is heavily redacted. It's not attached to this uh, filing of hers, at least in a way that lets us know whether or not that that is the truth or not. So, you know, I mean, it's hard not to... Uh, and, and, you know, go back to the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial. When we talk yeah. about allegations like this and we talk about it in the terms of uh, of the end of a relationship, because 
anybody can make allegations, right? And you know this having been on both sides of the law, in divorce cases, what have you. It's so easy for somebody to make an abuse allegation against their their partner or soon to be former partner because they want to gain leverage in whether it's custody or some kind of property dispute or anything else. So what we're seeing here is just a private jet and a, uh, you know, winery in France as opposed to what, uh, what you or I might encounter in day to day life. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> later. I'm, I'm, I'm working yeah. on the jet. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to, I'm glad that you brought up the comparison to to Depp and Heard because I wanted to talk a little bit about that and how these types of allegations are sometimes used as leverage in these family law cases. But I wanted to touch on uh, a little bit first, just the allegations that she's making and the idea that it did the FBI didn't bring any kind of charges, and she's saying there was some sort of declination from the U.S. Attorney's Office, but. If there are corroborating witnesses, because even in her own uh, allegation, she's saying that the children were involved. I imagine there's other uh, personnel on that flight who may have witnessed things. If there's these people who witnessed it and they came forward to the FBI and the FBI did a thorough investigation, which they always do, I find it hard to believe that either one, those corroborating witnesses existed or two, there was any kind of evidence here because it seems like if they could corroborate it, they would have brought charges. Don't you think so? In spite of his celebrity status? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people might be suspicious saying, oh, he's Brad Pitt, he's rich, he's going to get away with whatever he wants to. But I think, you know, your question brought in the, the operative word being if. If there were these people, if there was this, these accusations, if these people came forward. And my guess is none of the above happened because I don't see the FBI turning a blind eye to child abuse in the airways just because it's Brad Pitt. I don't think it works that way, right? If you have that kind of evidence. My guess is that kind of evidence did not exist. Because if there is, he probably would have been charged. We're talking six years now. Nothing more has seemingly come forward. So, you know, as I said earlier, anybody can make an allegation. We saw that in the Amber Heard case, right? She made all kinds of allegations, none of which were supported. So until I see proof of the incident or and or proof that the, the police or the FBI rather found probable cause, you have to believe that they are just allegations without support. Yeah. Uh, the other thing you mentioned that I wanted to kind of flush out some more is th this idea that we have to remember this is being brought up in a litigation about a, 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 the sell, sale of a winery, right? So this has nothing to do with her trying to, you know, get criminal charges or, or, or what. So it... Explain to us, and you kind of talked about it, how this is used as leverage in these cases and that we see this, unfortunately, pretty often in cases involving large net worth divorces or separation of assets where all of a sudden out of the word work comes all of these charges. And I'm not trying to make any kind of determination here about whether or not Jolie is being truthful or not. But do you think that the teeth was taken out of these allegations by the fact that the FBI did essentially clear him? Yeah, ultimately, I think that is the case. I mean, I think they're being brought up now as a way to just uh, a simple act of revenge, if you will. He wants to do something. She's dissatisfied with it. You know, you can't 
for the most part, you know, you, what you put in a legal brief does not oh, expose you to defamation, unlike Amber Heard publishing, a, you know, a, an op-ed, if you will. So, yeah, I mean, these kind of things, you see it all the time, unfortunately, and it's not just about vineyards. It can be about, you know, toasters and, and dogs and, and different things like that because people get so invested and their feelings come into play and egos come into play. I'm not going to let him do this to me. I'm not going to let her do that to me. And it just becomes this human nature. And then when these things come up, the other party, the agreed party, in this case it was Jolie, is going to throw everything against the wall to muddy someone up. You're going to make me do something that I don't want to do, so I'm going to make you pay in a certain way. And it's simple, just vengeance. That's all yeah. that drives these allegations. Yeah, yeah. It really, really gets messy in some of these situations. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. Let's move to Waukesha, Wisconsin. Um, accused of driving his SUV into a Christmas Day parade, leaving six dead and dozens injured, Daryl Brooks was allowed to act as his own counsel by Judge Jennifer Darrow last week. Brooks, who considers himself a, quote, sovereign citizen, has clashed with the judge and made multiple outbursts prior to the jury selection process, which began this Monday, October 3rd. The jury selection process saw more disruptions from Brooks, which forced the judge to take 10 recesses before ultimately forcing Brooks to watch the court proceedings from another room uh, via video link. We have some footage of that. Let's take a look at that now. All right, Mr. Brooks, you have got to stop. It's, it's fine if you object. I will rule on it as I deem appropriate under the rules of evidence which by the way, I provided a copy for you. See that big book over there? No, it has the criminal statutes, it has the traffic code, it I has the rules it. of evidence. Well, it's on your table, it's uh, behind the microphone and it's there. I've provided it to you as a courtesy so you that you provide. have that you, available you to you. anything to me. Something, right, I'm directing that, the bailiffs to remove them to the other courtroom. I've provided ample opportunity I've, I've never, for Mr. I've Brooks to abide anything. by the simple rules of decorum and Your civility. Honor. Your Honor, I don't he consent is, or agree to what you are doing. Your lack of consent, consent is noted for the record. I don't give consent to an estoppel. I don't give I'll make consent. a more full record when we um, are open again to, to the public. I don't give consent to be removed. Uh, Adam Reporter, the record should reflect uh, the court is stepping right. off the bench. Uh, you may step off. I move, I move for a motion to dismiss. You still haven't even ruled on the claim. Remarkable stuff uh, that the judge has to deal with in this case. Daryl Brooks faces 77 total charges, including six counts of first degree homicide and over 60 counts of reckless endangerment. First off, uh, Kirk. Uh, I'm going to ask you to second guess the judge here if you, if you choose to, but do you think she made a mistake in allowing him to represent himself? I don't think she did because I think really, and I, again, I practiced in Arizona my whole career, but the case law, even on the federal level, seems pretty clear that if a defendant wants to move forward as his or her own counsel, that right is pretty absolute. Now, you could see when they went through this soliloquy that took forever, right? I mean, he was so obstinate, he was crossing out words and, and things of that nature. Um, 
you know, she did her best to try to prevent him from doing so, but she knew the law and she knows that ultimately she's backed into a corner that she cannot necessarily force counsel upon him if he doesn't want it. So ultimately that was a battle that he was going to win. So there's, it probably would have been a mistake to do otherwise because had he asked for counsel or, and she to operate as his own counsel and had that right been denied and he been convicted as possible that it could come back on appeal. So this way, ultimately, it diminishes the opportunity for it to come back on appeal on the yeah. counsel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we're dealing with a case, too, where he doesn't have standby, uh, which is interesting because I, I've, I've dealt with pro pers before, but usually there was standby assigned and the judge had to explain to him here that this that's not this is not that situation that if he's in this he's in this for the entire entirety of the case um this thing's going to drag on forever no i mean if the, if this is how we're we're getting even through jury selection um do you think this ends in a mistrial just because of his shenanigans or is this something that we're just going to have to trudge through I think it's going to be something they have to trudge through because, like you say, my experience was that there was always standby counsel as well. But in this, let's face it, Josh, this guy has taken this pro per counsel thing to a different level. I mean, I've seen pro pers be obstinate in the courtroom, but, you know, objecting every two seconds, holding a sign that says objecting, you know, taking off his shirt, throwing shoes at things. I mean, this is a new level of obstinate, right? And he's certainly probably going to persist in this. And I imagine ultimately he probably will be trying this case from the auxiliary courtroom for the safety of everyone involved and his own as well. So, yeah, he's certainly taken it to the next level. But ultimately, I think it's something that's just going to have to be trudged through because of the decision the court, uh, the judge made earlier. He wants to represent himself. This is what it's going to be. I mean, he's still on trial for murder here. And and I realize that he's kind of got his own very strong thoughts on whether or not he needs to answer to this court and everything else. But a jury is still going to have to, you know, make a decision about whether or not he's responsible for the these murders here. And, and again, this might be one of those things where it's just such a convincing case that, that you know, I, I don't care how great of a lawyer he had even working for him that this there's just so much convincing evidence but do you think he's just so kind of harming his reputation with the jurors that this this trial isn't going anywhere for him anyways how do you yeah. I, I guess my question is how do you think the jurors are reacting to all of this yeah i don't think he comes in with a good reputation josh i mean and, and let's yeah. face it too and i think you hit on a key there even if he had the best counsel available to you, the outcome isn't going to be any different, right? I mean, how many times do you have a crime on tape where the massacre is on tape and you know who is behind the wheel? What attorney is going to be able to do anything? You can't say don't believe your lying eyes to the jury, right? So ultimately, the conviction is a formality in this case. It's just how much obstinance, how much, uh, you know, of a uh, kerfuffle is he going to cause in the courtroom getting there. That's ultimately it. And I think on some level, he probably knows that that is the case too. So he just wants to cause as much commotion as possible. Yeah. One last point on this. Brooks notably withdrew a plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease before his counsel was dismissed and he was allowed to uh, represent himself. 
with all of these antics, with the idea that there is possible mental um, disease here at play, with the, the way he's obviously behaving is not as a person who has all their faculties about him, and even the crime itself. Uh, it, it could arguably be a demonstration of someone who's dealing, you know, with some sort of mental distress, not trying to excuse it at all. But obviously, it's somebody not acting, you know, with all their mental faculties about them. Is is this just going to be a nightmare on appeal? I mean, are, are we going to be dealing with this case for years and years to come? You know, honestly, I don't think so, because if the ground they're standing on in terms of making a determination for competency of trial, and that's all that really matters. Keep in mind, a lot of people, you know, a lot of viewers might understand there's a difference between an insanity plea type of thing when you're making a case, because you're talking about at the time of the incident, and his competency to uh, stand trial is assessed later, closer to the, the proximity of the trial. Could you could you explain that to us? Because that is something I wanted to talk about. But explain sure. the difference there. Yeah. Well, when you're talking about an act, when you're talking about a criminal act, in this case, in Mr. Brooks' case, it was running the people over, driving through the crowd in Wisconsin. An insanity plea would look at his mental state at the time that he was driving that car, the moments beforehand, the moments afterhand, that sort of thing. And that would be the only thing that would be relevant. When, after he's arrested and what have you and then there's an issue of his mental health the issue becomes his competency to stand trial not to represent himself but to stand trial meaning he can understand the proceedings against him he knows who the judge is he knows who the prosecutor i mean it's a very very low bar as you know judge very low bar and once if he can understand that that makes him competent to stand trial and and sadly the way it can play out is that competency that low bar that competency stand trial is if he clears that he can also represent himself. So the disparity is in the point of time at the trial versus during the, the time of the event. So I don't think that's going to cause an appellate issue because one that would ultimately, I think, come under the purview of ineffective assistance of counsel, which he's really waiving by giving up uh, his right to, uh, you know, to have an attorney. So he's representing himself. So that is forfeited. So ultimately, you know, I think this might be when going back to what we were talking about earlier, the trial might take longer. It might be a, a, a tougher haul to get through this trial. But the appellate issues and the examination of his mental health will probably be much shorter because there's going to be a lot less for him to appeal. And, and he's not going to make a good record on appeal, let's face it. Yeah, yeah. And it's unfortunate that underlying all of this, is the loss of all these lives and how many people's, you know, the families of all those folks and how they were affected and 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 at their time when they would be seeking some sort of justice and closure to all of this that we're dealing with this, these these antics of this person. It, it, it's just really unfortunate how it's almost continuing to victimize these poor people. Moving along to Salinas, California, after 11 weeks of trial with multiple delays, the jury has finally begun their deliberation process for the murder of Kristen Smart. Paul Flores is charged with her murder, while his father, Ruben Flores, is charged with accessory after the fact for allegedly helping to conceal her body. Smart was a Cal Poly freshman who disappeared in 1996. Though her body was never found, she was declared dead in 2002. No charges were brought prior to the arrest of Paul Flores and his father in April of 2021. 
In the prosecution's closing arguments, the prosecution told jurors that Paul Flores not only killed the 19-year-old after attempting to sexually assault her, but that Flores had, quote, hunted the freshman for months, often appearing where Smart went, including her dorm room. The defense rebuked these allegations, making the argument that the prosecution's case is entirely circumstantial with no concrete DNA evidence leaking Flores to the crime. Kirk, jump right in. I know you've watched this closely. Uh, do you think the prosecution was able to prove their case after all these weeks? Well, you know, when I watch a lot of these trials and I talk on court TV, what have you, I, I usually can get a sense of where a particular trial is going. But this is one of those that's, that's just, to me, too close to call. Because you talked about it, the fact that the crime happened in 1996. And there is a real lack of evidence. I mean, I think the state's theory is sound. It's probably true. Um, we said we heard about him lurking around her, his behavior, what have you. And we know that there's a little bit of DNA evidence at the father's home, which would kind of implicate them both. But right now, to me, it seems like the prosecution just has a theory. Maybe yeah. a really good one, but what, you know, and they've gone, they've kind of maybe gone farther than they should have in talking about sexual assaults and things like that, because they don't have any evidence to uh, support that allegation. They just have a, a modus operandi, if you will. And I think that's certainly one of the issues that's going to be brought up on appeal if he is convicted. But yeah, to me, I think this is too close to call because if the jurors really hold the, the state to the burden, it's going to be tough to convict either one of them based on just a simple theory, even though it's a really good one, because we have to remember too, in, in it's 2022, and unlike in 1996, what, what we might call the CSI effect is in full effect with jurors. They want to see tangible evidence in order to make a conviction. You're asking a juror, at least it comes with the younger Flores, you're asking a jury to put someone away for murder for life based on just a theory. And if those jurors hold to their burden, it's possible that there could be an acquittal in this case. Yeah. No body, no real forensics, no eyewitnesses, no confession. It's a cold case. It's about as difficult as you can get for the prosecution. One of the strongest um, pieces of evidence that I felt in this case was these other women who are in uncharged sexual assaults had claimed that Paul Flores had assaulted them on, on different occasions. And it's important to understand how this came in. And you touched on it a little bit, but they they came in um, as, in, in other words, he's not facing trial for those allegations, but they used that as evidence that he committed a crime here because they alleged that this murder took place during the course of a sexual assault. This is my long-winded way of getting around to the fact that if you believe that there's insufficient evidence that a sexual assault took place during the murder of Smart, then you shouldn't have been allowed to get in these other evidence of sexual assaults. And if that's what the jury is going to hang their hat on, I agree with you, and I'd like you to kind of comment on this. Could that present a, a fairly um, problematic issue on appeal if there is a conviction in this case because it's almost like a house of cards that if you don't have the sexual assault, then you don't have this evidence. And that evidence might have been your strongest evidence. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree, because I, I agree with you that that is ultimately the strongest evidence. That's what I'm saying. It's they have a theory, a good theory about this sexual assault and murder and him hanging around her, what have you. But you're right in terms of the admissibility of this evidence. It does seem to me 
to be very uh, ill-advised by the judge to allow this evidence in because you hit on the key point. You know, and, and in Arizona, we had something called 404C, which is sexual propensity evidence. But there has to be a link, and, and we only have half half the sandwich, if you will. We have these yeah. other women claiming that he sexually assaulted them in uncharged acts, but there's none linking the idea. There's no evidence, period, linking the idea that he did this with Ms. Smart. We don't have a body, what have you, no DNA, et cetera. So that does become highly problematic because you're saying, well, he did it this time because he did it before. This time he had to take it further. But ultimately, the rule is you can't be convicted on prior bad acts. It cannot be based on, you know, solely on prior bad acts. And I think that there's a real problem there. That's why I was very surprised when the judge let it in, because you're right. It usually works from what the evidence they have to link it back to prior bad acts. And this time you're, you're taking the prior bad act and hurling them into the evidence of the trial. And I don't think that the rule of 404 is going to work that way. And I do think that's going to be highly problematic. Yeah. Excuse me, on appeal. Yeah. And and is, as we're talking about this, it's a really nuanced topic that we're discussing, you know, in getting your head wrapped around it, you really have to kind of have a background in the law and understanding propensity and how it can be used and when it can be used, but creating that proper nexus all of which might be lost on the jurors, right? I mean, jurors are kind of common sense people for the most part. They might not have any kind of legal background. And are they going to be able to to split these hairs and parse this and go, well, you know, what if what if the jurors don't believe this was in the course of a sexual assault? What if they just believe that he 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 well, I guess if they believe they he murdered her, then they believe that he murdered her. But if they don't believe a sexual assault took place, but they're going to they're going to hinge their verdict on the idea that other women came forward, it just creates like I agree with you such a mess and such kind of bootstrapping of an argument by the prosecution that I I would not doubt that we see issues like this on appeal. Yeah, ultimately, because I think the big, biggest way I can frame it is, is is completely backwards. I mean, you're yeah. trying to confirm a conviction based on prior bad acts, but you don't even know that you have that bad act yeah. in, in the trial. And, and you're right. The jurors are not going to maybe understand that nuanced kind of deal. And they're going to look at him. And, OK, he's a bad guy. OK, well, yeah, he's a bad guy, it would appear. But at the same time, that's not the basis for conviction. There has to be proof beyond a reasonable. Uh, that's why I say if the jury fixates and uses that CSI effect to say, okay, well, where is this sexual assault? Where is this thing? If they look at the state's case with scrutiny, I think they're going to have to lead towards acquittal. Yeah. And, and, and I do agree with you that I think the, the state definitely has a very good theory. I think there's a lot of stuff pointing towards Flores. I, I think it's one of those cases where who else could have done this? Um, and so I, I would hate for this not to bring closure to the families, but to just kind of create other ongoing issues down the road. But we shall see if they even come back with a conviction at all. In any case, Kirk, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? I think the easiest place to find me is to go to kirknermy.com. There's a link to my books and what I'm doing in terms of uh, fitness and, and health and weight loss if people want to. Uh, get involved in that for themselves. And and I'm at Nermi Unchained on Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. 
And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>